Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another awesome episode of the Biff Bites Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Mee, uh, joined by always by my faithful co-host, Mr. Brendan Flaherty. How's it going, Brendan? I'm great, thanks. How you doing? Awesome, awesome. And unfortunately, our friend Mike Long is unable to make it on this episode, but that's okay. We have a great stand-in for you guys. Uh, first time on the podcast and newest members of the uh, Boston Institute of Finance team. Uh, joining us for his first episode is uh, Adam Shear. How's it going, Adam? Hey, Jerry. Hey, Brandon. Uh, great to be a part of this. Longtime listener. Uh, glad to uh, be part of the conversation today. It's not saying much. Can't when it's be part that long. Your, yeah, part of your job yeah. description, you have to listen to it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Adam's the newest member of the team. Adam, can you kind of let our listeners know a little bit about like what, what you do here, kind of what your role is, and, and how you're involved in the CFP world? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so my, my title is Director of Curriculum, uh, but um, on the CFP side of the business, side of the world, and uh, looking to make our CFP content uh, the best out there for all the students that are working through their education requirements and uh, getting ready to sit for the exam. So uh, there's quite a bit of work that's inside the content uh, just to make sure that it's understandable and clear, um, thinking about how best to present different concepts for our students. Uh, also supporting them as questions come up and uh, writing new questions that are going to test their knowledge, uh, give them space for application of concepts, and just basically being for them the whole way, whether they need uh, a little advice on a question or uh, bigger advice about, you know, now what? I got, I got my CFP marks, now what do I do? Or I'm thinking about getting my CFP marks. How do I go about that? So uh, like many of us, a lot of a lot of different things that we do here, uh, but just really, really happy to be with the team and, and helping our students out. Awesome. Awesome. And uh, bringing in tow with you today, you also invited uh, your friend who is our guest of honor on today's episode. Uh, you want to introduce your uh, your tag along, Adam? Yeah, this is uh, Mr. John Robinson of Blueprint uh, Investment Partners. Uh, John you are the are you the founder of of blueprint co-founder uh we got connected through one of my old friends from uh, my first job in, in finance your your sales manager mike carlone mm -hmm. and uh had a, a fun discussion last week where uh my daughters literally gave me the hook <laughs> at the end of the end of the talk <laughs> they uh put a hanger over my head and uh and and pulled me off screen so <laughs> It was that one was, for the books. It was great. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, yeah. <laughs> End scene. Great to have you on the uh, the cast this week, uh, John. Um, you know, really interested to kind of pick your brain about, um, you know, the industry side of, uh, of the finance world. You know, as CFPs, we tend to really focus on financial advisors and the individual client. And, um, you know, I don't think that enough uh, attention is given to the more the industry side. So it's going to be great to get your perspective, you know, as a, as a founder of a, of a mutual fund and kind of pull the curtain back a little bit and see what's going on behind the scenes. Yeah. Thank you guys for having me. It's good to be with you. Definitely. definitely. And now I understand that it says on your website that you're the co-founder, but you said you wanted to go on record here 
that the whole thing was your idea? <laughs> yeah, he doesn't know I'm doing the podcast. <laughs> so for, for these purposes, I'm the founder. Absolutely. Yeah, Brandon, Brandon Langley is not a co-founder. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. All, all the credit, all the credit. And, and he's, and, and, you know, frankly, he's the brains behind, behind the whole deal anyway. So he'll, he'll ultimately find out about the podcast and then I'll, I'll be, uh, then we'll have a great discussion. <laughs> Uh, well, yeah, definitely want to talk more about the Blueprint uh, Mutual Fund. Um, but first, as is tradition, we're going to warm up with our question of the episode. Are you ready, gentlemen? Yeah. yeah. Awesome. So your young neighbor, Susie, recently received $500 for her birthday. Uh, she is an aggressive investor and wants to get every penny invested right away. Uh, she also wants to invest the $100 she makes each month from her paper route. She is very interested in investments and knows that she could that she should invest in a well-diversified portfolio. However, she also knows that she is still learning and could use some guidance from experts with experience. What type of investment would you recommend as the best fit for Susie? Is it A, blue chip stocks? B, triple A rated uh, bonds, C, low cost ETF, or D, diversified mutual funds. Now, this question seems like a layup that we would get on the CFP exam, but there can be actually a little uh, twist at the end that I want to talk about. But before we get into that, Brendan, uh, what do you think about uh, A, blue chip stocks for Susie? How do you feel about that? Yeah, I think given if she had the appropriate risk tolerance for it and then the time horizon lined up, I think blue chip stocks would be a perfectly acceptable uh, route for her to take. The issue is the amount of money that she has to invest. So if we were going to look at uh, you know some of the blue chip stocks today, uh, now that we've got splits that just don't happen anymore, she doesn't have enough for one share. Uh, and, and so I, I think it would be difficult to give her a very well diversified portfolio uh, so I think we would have to move on to something else. Adam, uh, what do you think about triple A rated bonds for Susie? It'd be a nice part of of a well diversified portfolio. Um, but based on the facts about what Susie wants, I, I don't think it's the the best choice uh, given the goals and given given the circumstances. Uh, can certainly provide some diversification if she had more of a well rounded well-diversified portfolio to begin with. Uh, but, but given her goals, given her, her aggressive risk tolerance, uh, I would strike that one out. In fact, that'd be the first one to go, in my opinion. I agree with that. So A and B are out. Now, leaving the toughest for John. John, in your completely unbiased position <laughs> as a founder of a mutual fund, <laughs> should Susie go for the low-cost ETF or the diversified mutual fund? What do you think? I'm not. Uh, if you had to pick one person to take a test for you, I would should be the last person on your list. However, <laughs> in, in this case, I'm going to go with diversified mutual fund, not not because we, um, we operate one, but... Um, you know, because, just because of, of the fact pattern here, you know, first Susie wants to get all of the money invested, right? That's a key point here. Mm -hmm. uh, she wants to get every penny invested right away. Um, and she wants it well diversified, right? And the mutual fund allows you to invest every penny. And the diversified mutual fund allows you to access a broad mix of, of asset classes. 
Um, so yeah, I'm going D diversified mutual fund. Yeah, that's the right answer. Yeah. And, and you nailed it there. Uh, the key points to look for is she wants to invest every last penny. Um, while the firms have started introducing fractional shares and, you know, that's kind of a conversation for another day. That's a, a new product on the market is being able to buy fractional shares so you can buy in any dollar amount. But traditionally in the market, mutual funds have really been the only investment option that you can uh, invest down to the very penny. You know, every everything else for stocks, bonds and ETFs, you need to buy in, in share quantities and buy it based on whatever the going rate of that individual share is. So you're almost always left with a little remainder cash left over in the account. And John doesn't want to toot, toot his own horn too much here, but I'll, I'll do it for him. Uh, the other key point to look at is, uh, you know, she's looking for guidance for from, uh, you know, experts with experience. Uh, a big differentiator between ETFs and mutual funds is, you know, mutual funds have a team of experts behind them. Um, you know, ETFs do have teams, but really ETFs are kind of a, uh, no, I don't want to say set it and forget it, but it's more based on an algorithm. Whereas mutual funds, I feel traditionally have a more hands-on experience. Am I, am I off base with that? No, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, even for a shop like ours that, that uses systems to make decisions, um, you still need a designer of those systems. And, you know, the best systems designers are those with, uh, that have been educated, you know, in uh, statistics, but also have it, have market knowledge and experience to draw from when designing those systems. Uh, and probably lastly, the most important thing is uh, implementing those systems consistently over and over, um, which is the most important part is that consistency factor. And that really, you know, doing that in high efficacy way uh, comes with experience, experience you know, helps in that regard. So, so yes, um, I think that's right. Awesome. And I, I think that's a great segue to kind of get into, you know, blueprint, you know, as a fund and a, as an idea, can you kind of give us the, uh, the five minute elevator pitch? It's a really long elevator ride. <laughs> so, uh, what's, yeah. what's, <laughs> what's the, what's the blueprint kind of elevator pitch for us? That's okay. You know, I'm, I, uh, I'm from the South, so I like to tell stories. So I like five minute elevator rides. Um, <laughs> So Blueprint is, a, is an asset manager that is designed to serve financial advisors, uh, particularly uh, financial planners. We focus a lot on behavior. We focus a lot on being behaviorally friendly. So uh, both our behavior in terms of being systematic and being disciplined, as I mentioned before, and that's just going to be a, you know something I repeat over and over because that's just one of our, our core principles. But um, ensuring that our behavior is appropriate and that we're executing the strategies um, in order to increase the probability that the client achieves their goals. Yeah, that's awesome. And especially, you know, like you mentioned, the behavioral finance piece of it, that's becoming a bigger and bigger piece with the CFP exam. It's really being a, a focus of not just CFP professionals, but financial advisors in general, just really understanding the the psychological nature of the market and, and their clients. Um, so it is really interesting to see that you guys put that at the the forefront. Um, but I'll, we'll, we'll talk about that in a bit. But also I wanted to mention one thing I thought was very interesting when I first looked at uh, 
Blueprint's website was kind of your focus on transparency, which is something that is kind of unusual for the mutual fund world. You know, most mutual funds won't even reveal what their 11th largest holding is. You know, they they reveal 10 and that's it. That's all you get. Anything beyond that's the, you know, proprietary, closely guarded secrets. Yeah. Yeah. Look, we um, it wasn't without a dent to our ego that, that we made that decision to be completely and fully transparent. Right. Where, where our ego came into play is, well, okay, if we let everybody know exactly what our rules are, uh, are our rules special and were they ever that special, right? Were they the secret sauce? And what we, what we realized when we put some heat to that idea is that they are, the, the rules are um, very important and they're well-researched and they're statistically sound and they're robust. However, the secret sauce is in daily discipline that it takes to run the strategy day in and day out and follow it consistently. The analogy I always say is it's no different from the the diet and exercise. You know, diet and exercise, in order to be healthy and be fit, the equation is very, very simple, right? You eat a certain amount of calories and you do a certain amount of, of exercise equals I'll be generally healthy and I'll be generally fit. And look, I'm the last person that should be having that conversation with you but I'm just drawing from the <laughs> analogy that um, we feel it's this, it's, it's a, an analog to uh, successful investing. It's, it doesn't have to be, and in some cases should not be complicated. Um, it should be simple, but not simplistic. And it should be done in a, but it should be implemented with a very rigorous discipline process. And um, for us, that's, that's really, that's the key. So if that's the key, then we'll tell you what the rules are because look, um, the truth is, is that as soon as the rules give you something that you don't like or, or you know, hit one of your biases, you're going to change the rules anyway or stop following them. So, <laughs> <laughs> right. so that for us is sort of a moat, if you will. Yeah. So sticking with the diet and exercise uh, analogy, it's almost like you guys are the, uh, the fitness coach, you know, everyone knows the, uh, the equation of, you know, diet and exercise equals long-term health the trouble and where the behavioral finance comes into play is actually sticking to those rules when the situation gets a little uh, uneasy, the market starts getting choppy and uh, you know, people might not want to uh, you know, stick to that, that guideline. You guys are there to kind of help people stay on track. I tell you, Jerry, I, I think that's, that's right on the money. Um, I haven't thought about it in those terms. The thing I would say just to, to add to that, cause that's, that's right on point is, if you had a trainer that could actually exercise for you. <laughs> yeah, sign me up. <laughs> you know, and, and when you're an investor that can, can, as an investor for others, you can do the hard things and they get the benefit in that case, right? And so, um, you know, it, it's, it's unique in a sense, but to your point, it's, exact, it's, it's very similar, yes. Hey, John, I have a question. So I want to go way back in time. I'm interested in in your skill set and your alleged co-founder's uh, <laughs> skill set and background. Uh, how did you end up uh, arriving at that point where you said, "Let's let's give this a go. Let's do this. This is this is our path." Um, what was your background like? What about his? Yeah, so um, it's a good question. So going way back, you know, I I I come from a family that um, runs small businesses. You know, and uh, it's it's um, blue collar to to small business entrepreneur, right? So growing up, I just got to see, I thought that was normal, right? So uh, I always had that bug to, to 
do something on my own. I had various businesses just growing up um, that, you know, were fun and obviously didn't amount to anything. But, and now, so you pair that with this interest in finance and trading and Wall Street and, you know, uh, some of the um, more fanciful uh, ideas that you have watching movies you know, a uh, fantasy, especially compared to what it actually is when you get there. And, um, <laughs> was, was Gordon Gecko a hero? Is that what you're trying to say? <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, I never, it's funny. I, I, I gravitated more towards like, um, Billy Ray Valentine than uh, I did Gordon yeah. Gecko. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, that movie's based on a, that's based on a true story. Training places. <laughs> that's based on a true story. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so when I, I knew I wanted to, to get in, I interned at Merrill Lynch in college. Um, and I interned for, for investment, but just anything I could do to, to, to get experience there. And um, so I knew, okay, if, I'm, if I want to do this, I want to try to do it at, at the highest level. The highest level is Wall Street. But how does a guy from uh, you know, rural North Carolina, uh, Greensboro, North Carolina, with a, a Rolodex uh, that doesn't even have a card. It's just the plastic piece. It, there's no cards in my Rolodex. <laughs> you know, in, um, in 2002, how do I do that? And so what I did was um, I basically pulled down, this is before LinkedIn, you know, so I, I pulled down all of the New York Stock Exchange member firms. And then I tried to link that back to an alumni database at UNC Greensboro, which is where Brandon and I both went. That's how we met. And I found one guy that nobody had ever heard of who used to be the chief risk officer for Bear Stearns and was running their specialist firm, which is to say their um, uh, New York Stock Exchange uh, market maker, uh, Bear Wagner specialist. He was running that with uh, a trader who's, uh, you know, also in one of those really fun books with, um, you know, Ivan Boski. His name was John Mulhern. So I sent, I said, okay, he, he does if, if I'm him, I don't, I don't take calls. Right. <laughs> right. And, uh, and I especially don't take calls from people I don't know. And I especially don't take calls from, you know, 20 year olds from North Carolina trying to get a job. So I wrote him a letter and I sent a FedEx because I said, you know, few people turn down FedExes and he, he got it and he called me and they had me up for an interview and they hired me. So that's where I, broke in, you know, about a wow. week and a half after I graduated, I was on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange and is trading it for a specialist firm, um, which that's an awesome story. That's, you know, that's really getting your name out there, making an impression on people. Like you said, you know, sending them a FedEx, not just calling them up. You know, that's uh, that definitely takes some gumption. It was um, it was something. Uh, <laughs> it was a, I mean, as you might imagine, you know, the uh, and I'd already been up there a couple of times during spring break and doing stuff like I didn't have any money. So, you know, I would just uh, get there however I could. And I would stand outside, uh, you know, like a schmo handing out resumes to traders as they would walk off the floor. <laughs> then when I'm a trader walking off the floor and seeing some guy handing out resumes, my immediately it thought is leave me alone. And I'm like, Wait a no, you were just that guy. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> So, Good. you know, at a brief moment of, after, after my brief moment of like, you know, major hypocrisy, I, uh, I would at least strike up conversation. But um, so after trading, uh, 
I moved, you know, every, my idea was, okay, every, every, if I want to be a, a money manager, then I need the analytical side to it as well. So I became an equity research analyst for Prudential uh, covering software stocks. And that was completely different. I mean, one, one is a sprint and the other is just an absolute marathon. Um, and so, you know, I was modestly, and I'm putting modestly below moderately, okay, uh, successful at, at those jobs, but I could just never shake this feeling that I wanted to do something for myself or, or break out on my own. And Brandon and I had been trading. Uh, he was here getting his master's degree in, in um, economics back in North Carolina still, and he was starting to work in risk management for Wachovia at the time. So we were trading an account that uh, we called a joint account, but it was all his money. And um, along the way, we just started to say, okay, you know, what would it look like? You know, what would we do? And then I got turned on to some research and some books written by Michael Covell and some, some others on the, the, this philosophy of being systematic and trend following. And so we started running simulations because we're nerds and that's what nerds do on weekends and, um, you know, really diving into this body of work and decided, okay, this is the entry point from an investment perspective, which look, going from equity at being an equity research analyst to a systematic price-based trend follower is like, uh, you know, changing religions. Right. I mean, it's, it's, it's different. All my fundamental friends stopped talking to me for a while, you know, it was just like, <laughs> was, I, was a trail. <laughs> I was a total heretic, um, which is, you know, <laughs> understood. So uh, we started the, the, our first company was a managed, we started a managed futures fund back in 2007. What did you focus in? Great time. Anything specific or just general? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so, okay. So first of all, if you know anything about managed futures, you know that that may have been the only good time to have started a managed futures fund. Yeah. Right. 2007. Um, but you know, what we focused on was we were really, uh, we, we were generalists. So we traded as, as diversified a portfolio as we could because we, you, you know, statistically you just need, you need it bats, you know, what your, your average is roughly, you want, you need at bats. And so markets right. give more and more at bats and we were agnostic to market direction. And we started with $60,000 in a, in a commodity pool, which is the legal name for a, a limited partnership that trades futures. Um, again, knowing if you know anything about futures, if you have $60,000, you have a choice. You can lose that in a day. <laughs> can, yes. So you either don't trade as many markets, right? you're very, very, very highly leveraged. leveraged. Um, and so we, we did that version. We were highly levered. Um, and 07 was a great year uh, because that's the first time oil went above 100, you know, and I don't care where you buy oil on the way to 100. If you do it with a lot of leverage, you're, you're probably doing okay. And then 08 was a, even better because we were agnostic to direction and we were following trends. So, you know, their commodity currencies, were way down, stocks were way down, bonds were way up. Did any of your leverage dry up? Did you have did you have trouble sourcing capital? No, because good question. Just because of the nature of we would have. So if we were using um, more of a of, of a collateralized model, 
you know, trading like cash stocks on margin. Right. There's no question we would have been blown out of positions. Yeah. Um, but just the nature of, of futures, uh, we were able to get all the leverage we needed just th because of the inherent nature of the futures contract. Right. So, for example, when you buy an oil contract, uh, your initial margin is, you know, a thousand bucks. And if oil's at 60 a barrel, uh, the contract size is a thousand barrels. Right. So it costs a thousand bucks to control that contract. So, you know, Jerry, to your point, it doesn't take a, a but a couple of ticks against you, uh, you know, to wipe you out. So cutting losses, we, we learned how to cut losses quick in, in that environment. So, you know, we, we had at the time, there weren't a lot of great 40 act fund options in that space. So independent advisors would set up their own partnership and have us operate it. Um, and they would offer it to accredited investors. And they came to us in 09 and said, hey, look, we love your philosophy. We love your strategy. We love that you're systematic. And however, uh, we can't prudently as a fiduciary put any more than 5% of our accredited investor assets with you. But if you could domesticate what you're doing away from these really esoteric things called futures and all this leverage, keep what keep these core principles, but now migrate those over to ETFs and mutual funds, we would consider letting you run our whole book. And that was a godfather offer for us. So we did, we started down that path. And in 2011 launched strategies that focused on ETFs on a white label basis and spun those into really into uh, blueprint and 13 made that white label relationship, a sub advisory client, and then started offering blueprint branded, strategies going forward uh so one last question before we kind of move on to from the uh career path because we do have some other good topics i want to make sure we get to have time to get to but for our listeners who are you know seniors in college right now or career changing you know if i'm if i'm a you know a veterinarian assistant right now who wants to break into the the finance industry you know, what, what is some advice that you would give our listeners who are in that position and, you know, they want to be a mutual fund analyst or they want to, you know, kind of shadow your career path and, and get involved in the industry side of, of the finance, uh, finance world. Maybe the best advice I would give. So if I was giving advice to my kids, find somebody that you consider at the top of their game in the field and pursue them, pursue them through sending them a FedEx, pursue them, take them a, you know, I mean, you know, with, with, in this day and age, you can't show up at in somebody's door necessarily, but you know, hopefully uh, that will pass soon. Um, send them an email, connect with them on LinkedIn, do whatever it takes to try to find someone to have a conversation with first next best step, have a conversation with somebody who's elite in the field. Right. Because I just think number one, that will give uh, them confidence first of all, and it will get them down the path of, okay, in, in most cases, there's a million different avenues to go down in terms of learning about a topic. And some of the most difficult, uh, you know, at least in, in our career, when we were looking at uh, different areas of research and futures, um, you know, there's a million studies out there. How do I shrink that list? What's my criteria for shrinking that list down to 10? Because I can only consume so much and I can't wait 10 years to start this thing. Right. So what are the key elements? What are the, the crucial elements that I need to know um, or places that I need to look 
stones I need to look under uh, in order to, to get started. And then I think it is about overcoming that fear of just getting started and making mistakes. And I'm speaking from experience, you know, that's something that I've, I've definitely dealt with and, and struggled with just because we started, uh, you know, the, the, the indication in my, my personality that, that we started a, a company in 2007 with $60,000 under management uh, is less an indication about that I'm not fearful and it's maybe more an indication that I'm just crazy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, <laughs> you started know? a company in 2007, you know, on the brink of uh, the financial crisis, you know, with it, it really is kind of the, the pull yourself up by your bootstrap story. You know, <laughs> other people say, Oh yeah, we started this, this company. Meanwhile, they have, you know, uh, $10 million injection of, of capital, but you guys really did start it with just, you know, your, your buddy's bank account, basically. Yeah, pretty much. Exactly. And so, you know, there's a, there's a, uh, a saying that in courage, uh, having courage is, does not mean the absence of fear. Right. So, you know, I would just say have courage and get started because once you get started, the most important thing that is going to happen, which is you start to feel it. And then, you know, right, because you can have all the head knowledge in the world, but until you feel it in your gut, um, you won't really know what it's going to take. And that's your first that feedback loop, you know, that starts the feedback loop. So I would just say, find somebody, find an expert uh, or, or some, you know, doesn't find someone you deem in the realm of experts to centralize your focus on where to what your entry point might be and then start start walking and start taking steps. So I, I think it's valuable, you know, obviously the, the behavioral finance piece is, is still something that's relatively recent in terms of the history of investing. Um, and it wasn't that long ago that people looked at you funny if you, if you said that you were, you were concerned about behavioral biases. So what, how does trend following eliminate the behavioral biases that a lot of investors and advisors fall into when they're managing their money or someone else's? Yeah. So the first thing I would say is, um, you know, there's the two, there's really in, in that instance, there's three sets of, of, of emotions that you have to account for, right? There's the investor, there's the advisor, and there's the client. So trend following lends itself to uh, being um, codified and put in a systematic framework. So that helps manage the emotion of the investor because you know exactly what it is that you're going to do in response to X, Y, and Z. And you can go back and assuming that you've, you've designed a, a, a strategy with um, few parameters, right? And not overly biased it to past data, you can take a lot from simulating that over past data in different environments, in different geographical regions, uh, in different contexts to see how it would have performed and walk through that, not just because you're trying to look for the, the optimal solution, but what you're really trying to do is, is optimize the strategy for your emotions and a, and a client's, right? So um, can, you have to ask yourself as the investor, um, would I have been able to execute that strategy in, 2008, when um, our long-term trend-following strategy uh, it told us to re to reduce exposure in January of 08, right? That's you just ask yourself those questions. 
Um, can I, would I have been able to reduce exposure in uh, February of 2020 after the market had already fallen 10% and then we're getting the, an indication to reduce exposure by half, right? Those are, if you don't walk through the data and try to make it a part of your DNA, you will, you will, you will make bad decisions and you could fall prey to the same emotional. We all have emotional biases. It's, and it's the same emotional bias. It just shows up differently. So what are you doing as the investor to, to um, limit or eliminate emotions from the decision-making process? Now on the client and the advisor side, uh, the advisor, it, it, it's, it's, again, it's the same, it's two sides of the same coin. For the client, what we're trying to do is, because we're looking at, at trends and we're doing that over multiple time frames. So we'll look at the trend over um, the intermediate term, over the long term. So we're trying to create this. And, and just not to cut you off, but how do you, how do you define intermediate versus long term? What, what, okay. what are your goalposts? So uh, we use price as our chief input, right? That's our primary. Yep. And, but price in and of itself is fairly noisy on a day-to-day -day basis. Yep. Um, Especially now. Yeah, especially now. Yes, exactly. So uh, we're trying to turn this data point into information. And so we want to smooth it out by taking an average over a certain number of days. And so we create this average that updates daily. It's called a moving average. There are various types of moving averages. Uh, we use something called an exponential moving average. I'm not saying that because it's fancy. I'm just saying that because what it does is uh, you know, a standard average equally weights all data points in the, the series. An exponential average uh, weights the nearer term data a little more than it does the longer term data. So it's more reactive in the near term. That's just a choice that, that we made. It's not right or wrong. It's, it was just our choice. So in the intermediate term, we look at the average over the past 10 days and the past 100 days, and we look at the difference. So if the shorter term of those is above the longer term. So if the 10 is above the 100, we consider that a rising trend. If the inverse is true, we consider that a falling trend. Now, one thing we do that's differently than a lot of other managers, again, because we are trying to design these strategies with the advisor and the client in mind, is we capture this data daily, but we only react to it monthly. So what we're trying to do is limit turnover, build persistence into the model because one of the, the inherent, um, I'm going to call it a feature of uh, facet, maybe is a better word of trend following is that you get uh, a trend that begins to show itself. You, you buy it and then it reverses, right? A whipsaw. And so we're not explicitly trying to uh, eliminate whipsaws. I don't think that's possible, but what we're trying to do is just, build persistence into the model so that we have the most data to, available to us after something happens to make a decision. The longer term trend is defined by the 50 day and the 200 day moving averages and the same relationship exists there. So you're, you're long only? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So what we're trying to do is use the trend following as an asset allocation engine and not as a timing mechanism. You know, it's our belief that, that markets, there, there are some people in the world that can uh, repeatedly time markets well. Uh, 
but that's like saying there are people in this world that can hit 350 consistently. That's not something I'm going to go try and especially talk you into believing that I can do it. Right. So, um, we don't, we don't, um, use trend following for the timing element. We just use it to give us information. And when we deem that, uh, our research has shown that when a trend is rising, that, uh, that, that represents a market that is, um, more likely to, to continue in that direction than not with low volatility. And when a market is falling, you know, markets fall about two, two, two and a half times faster than they rise. And it's those, it's those environments where volatility expands and catastrophic loss can occur. So that's where you, you enter into the short treasuries and the cash positions? We can, yes. Um, so we devise the portfolios really over, all of our portfolios are designed on the same chassis. And as I mentioned before, we use where, where we can, which is almost everywhere, we use passive index ETFs. We do that because they're inexpensive. You know, up until four or five months ago, they were typically free to trade. Now they're, all of them are free to trade more or less. Um, but be, also because we're the ones doing the active portion. And so we like buying indexes because there's no tracking error. What we know that we can trust what we're buying will deliver to us exactly what we're buying it for. And then it's our job to determine how much of that thing we want exposure to. And have you gotten to a point where you look at the state of the market or there's unexpected upside or unexpected downside and, and, and fear that maybe the model's not going to work this time? Well, you know, I'd be lying if I said I did, that thought doesn't, doesn't cross my mind. Yeah, um, yeah no, it, 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 sure. Yeah. yeah, and so when that happens... Um, what we do is we go to the data and we look in the data and we, we look at, um, past periods of crisis. Yep. We, you know, we've got data going back to 1790. Um, yeah. And which asset classes? So I was, I saw that on your website, which I thought was interesting. Um, you know, obviously silver and gold, we can track for, for a long period of time, but stocks less so, right? So it's, it's more difficult of an exercise. Yes, it, that's true. Yeah, so we have um, monthly data going back in fixed income. Yeah, uh, going back to, to 1790, uh, roughly that in the UK as well. And then that's US, UK and, and Japan. And then the, the, you know, stock data we have actually from about 1850 uh, in the US. And it sort of cascades from there. The UK is a little bit newer and then Japan's a little bit newer. Um, and we're not, we, because it's monthly, uh, and we, we, our current strategies are built on daily data. Really what we're trying to do is look at, at how does the philosophy play out of cutting losses and, and riding winners. And then we can take those results and then test them using monthly data or daily data or weekly data or, or what have you in real time, uh, to compare, uh, because look, the speed has changed. Context has changed. Yeah. Regimes have changed. The, the only thing that hasn't is human nature. And so what we've, in some sense, now I'm going to get really uh, philosophical, is that we feel like when you have a model that's based on price, what you're really doing is modeling human behavior. Yeah. And we feel like regardless of how many machines are operating in the market, which are they dominate now, the machines are still 
being have to be turned on by humans and are being turned off by humans and are being programmed by humans. And they have, so they're only as good as the emotional uh, yep. constitution of, of the programmer. And so until for us, um, our strategies can evolve, will absolutely evolve over time. Um, so I, it may be the last thing I'll say there is you have to be very careful when, when you're designing systems to overfit to the past. And right. so you, there is a tendency to try to find the optimal solution right. in terms of parameters. And that's yep. just really, really dangerous. Yep. Um, so we try to optimize for uh, emotion and the ride, not the parameters. So are you, are you able to, to, to apply some sort of behavioral benchmark as opposed to just the traditional benchmarks that we would use to, to monitor performance? That we, we've been working on that for a while. Um, yeah. we're getting, we're getting closer. Uh, I mean, that's, I'm kind of mad that you asked that question after, you know, a little over an hour and it's taken us like 10 <laughs> years to, to ask the same question. Yeah. Um, but look, it's, it's a combination of things, right? And you can, you can use a, a, a sort of a weighted factor type model to look at, okay, so here's one way we've done it. Looking at, looking at a strategy, let's take, um, you have to have an anchor point, first of all. Right. In our estimation, while the world's benchmark is the S&P, the, the world's portfolio looks like a 60-40. So we c- in that instance, when we're looking about at behavior and a behavioral benchmark, we're looking at something relative to the performance of a 60-40. And it's not just the absolute return relative to a 60-40. Uh, you know, in most cases, if markets are, are rising 75% of the time, then over a long enough period of time, the best way to beat a 60-40 is to be a 61-39. 39, yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, it's not, yeah. that's not complicated. Um, so it's not just the absolute return. And it's not just the risk-adjusted return by way of, you know, Sortino ratio or Sharp ratio or information ratio, it would be how, how much does this comp that you're analyzing compared to the 60-40, how much does it deviate from the, a rolling 12-month rate of return from a 60-40? Because if it deviates significantly from a 60-40, that's behaviorally difficult for the investor. And so you've got that, then it's what is the max drawdown or the max expected drawdown, which is typically worse than the historical drawdown. Um, You know, what do you expect peak to trough to sustain in this, in this comp? And if the answers are it outperforms on an absolute basis and a risk adjusted basis, but it deviates from a 60-40 significantly over rolling 12s and its max drawdown is 55%, that makes it quantitatively favorable, but behaviorally unfavorable. Right. And, you know, that sort of gets back to this idea around, you know, is it, what's more important? You know, is it more important to have the idea, the, the perfectly optimized or a risk management, risk managed investment? Or is it perfect, or is it better to have perfect emotions, right? What's more important? So and, what do you think? Well, to investor success or, or, or successful completion of goals, so financial goals, which of those two do you think is the most important? I think in the end, it's, it's emotions. I would agree with you. Yep. And the reason is, is because, okay, let's say you've got the, the if you have the perfect 
risk managed solution with poor emotions, you will never realize the benefits of the risk managed solution, right? But in order to achieve perfect emotional balance, let's say, or whatever qualifier there, perfect emotions in, in an investment capacity, it presupposes that you have a risk management solution that will help deliver that, right? So uh, I think if, you, if you're solving for the emotional piece, you'll get to the risk management, but it, that's yeah. not, you can't flip that arrow. No, because it, it requires that you stick to the plan, right? We go back to the diet. You know, the diet's great and, and the fitness regime is great right up until the bag of chips and beer starts calling me at 11 o'clock at night. Yes, exactly. You know, if I can't stick to it, then it's not going to have the same results. That's, that's right. And, you know, the, the compound, the loss of compounding, as you guys know, I mean, it's, it's immense, especially the longer you take it out that the, the opportunity cost gets bigger, you know, compounds at a, at a, at a faster, bigger rate. So, um, so yeah, I think, I think emotions in that case have the edge. All right. And then the last thing I want to, I want to ask, uh, cause I know we have other things we want to move on to. There's a million other things I could ask you, but, but, uh, talk to me a little bit about behavioral, uh, discipline in ESG investing. Oh man. Yeah. <laughs> You know, that is such an un man, that is such an untapped topic. Um it's it's huge. Also because, sorry, sorry to cut in, but uh Brennan, could you also just uh define that for some of our listeners who might <laughs> might not uh, So environmental, socially responsible governance types investing. So so investing pristine investing, let's say, uh with, with social conscience. So I think ESG investing and you know we've we've recently rolled out and I, I, we just got to the one year mark on an ESG um, equities strategy that employs those same tactics. Um, so I think ESG investing in and of itself um, is um, is more emotionally friendly than non ESG because of the of the passion or the um, you know, the preference of the investor. It's more than an investment for them, right? It's a cause, it's, a, it's, it's just a deeper level than picking an index fund. So doesn't that obscure your objectivity? From an invest, just straight up from an investment standpoint? I think it can. Um, yeah. I think in the end, everybody's got their uncle point, so it doesn't matter how much they love it. You know, <laughs> they're gonna they're gonna yeah. fire it uh, if if it sucks bad enough or is too painful. Uh, that's probably the, the the better way to to articulate it. It's just too painful. They're gonna you know they're gonna bail. Um, I, I so it's funny you say that because I have a client uh, who had I had invested in uh, energy um, and and he he eventually called me. He was able to hold it for a year, but he said, "Listen." It hurts my soul to know that I own this. So I'm going, I, I know it's done well, but I can't do it anymore. And, and so we sold it. And, and so that I, I get that point. Well, my point of view with ESGs is um, eventually I feel it's going to just turn into a self-fulfilling prophecy because it's a point that's becoming more and more important with millennials. And as these millennials are aging and, you know, taking a, a larger footprint of the overall market, 
you know, if everyone is following these trends, that in itself should start to drive the prices up as well. You know, if it if just from the demand side of things. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is absolutely a wave um, that's happening. Um, you know, I think I don't know if we have a large enough sample size on the factors. Right. Themselves. Yep. Um, I love this idea that that the that the that the uh, behavior can also obscure the analysis. I haven't thought about yep. that. It's, I, I love that. Um, so for us, as we look at it, we say, okay, can we combine these two elements, which is um, allowing investors to have an, an investment that they're passionate about while, while also um, giving them a higher probability of not sustaining a large drawdown. That's really what we're after with, with our ESG strategy. It's look, um, you in, you know, I'm not, it's not for everybody. I, I think, you know, Jerry, to your point, pretty soon it's going to be the, you know, for a lot of people. Um, and so as, as that preference changes, uh, we just want to offer it in a way that somebody doesn't have to make the choice of, you know, I can buy ESG and lose 50% of my money at any one time, or I can buy non-ESG and lose 50.8% of my money. We want to give them another alternative, right? And, that, yep. and then there again, go, you know, you start incorporating different multiple layers of, of behavior uh, into that. Okay. I think it's really interesting. I think it, it that just that behavioral and ESG, how, uh, I mean, what does, what does that bring up if, if you're forming a, a policy and a strategy around things that reflect you? I mean, hypothetically, right? These are things I believe in. This is who I am. Yeah. And when that's not performing, right. I mean, I just wonder what, what you would see uh, just overall behaviorally. I mean, uh, this is what I believe. I'm con convinced I'm going to seek out that specialist out there who runs that RIA that does sustainable investing. Uh, and, and, yeah. and now what? It's, and it, 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 it could just be that you, may, you feel better about the 50% loss than you would sure. have if it was non-ESG, right? But again, we go back to the, it's like this, this circular argument about whether it's behaviorally sure. driven or not and whether you can, you can avoid the behavioral biases that yeah. come along with it. I, I lost 50% of my portfolio, but I kept 50% of my soul. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. And then look, there is no it... soul in investing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Brendan zero was Gordon. Gekko. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> awesome. Well, yeah. I think that's a, that's a good kind of cap. There definitely lots to talk about with behavioral finance. Um, definitely topic we'll be coming back to in, in future episodes as well. Uh, but I do want to give Adam some time. Poor Adam. We, we saved him for the end. Save uh, the best for last, right? Exactly. Exactly. Uh, but Adam, uh, he wanted to talk to John about, uh, you know, just being a fiduciary. Cause we talk a lot about being fiduciaries as CFPs and being a fiduciary to individual clients. I, I gotta imagine being a fiduciary on the, you know, the fund level is, is a different beast. Yeah. I'm, I'm John, this is, this is you. I just want to call out something before John takes this, uh, this question. So Right on your website, I had flashbacks to the code and standards 
the CFP codes and standards, looking at a little blurb from your website, but that we place our clients' interest and brand above our own. That is so inherently fiduciary of you. Um, so how does, how does that work on your end as an asset manager? Because we know fiduciary on our side of the house, you're providing advice, it's customized, it's personalized to that client. Um, if you hold the CFP marks, you, you have to be acting in their best interest at all times. Um, how does that work for you? You know, the, the nature of the strategies we feel like operate in a very high fiduciary way because, I mean, if nothing else, because we seek to use low cost instruments and we seek to um, be completely transparent. I mean, we are completely transparent. Um, the, the, what's reflected there on our website speaks to another aspect of what we do which is how we serve advisors per se, you know, very specifically. And that is, we want to, the advisor is the hero in, in our equation, right? So in an advisor's equation, their client is the hero, but for us, it's the advisor's the hero. So we are willing to, um, you know, completely put our egos aside and in some cases uh, operate our strategies in the name of the advisor, right? So the advisor can take their brand and put it right on top of our strategies and we're essentially operating as their investment infrastructure. So, you know, for us to, to do that is promoting their brand completely and supporting them in growing their business and taking our brand and putting it aside because then it becomes, and look, being fiduciary to me means uh, also translates to be symbiotic, right? What, what wins for them, if they win, we win, right? And in that case, um, the, the, the blueprint brand doesn't have to be promoted to, to anyone. As long as the, the advisor is successful, we're successful. And, and that's another blurb on your website as well, helping those investment advisors help the clients who trust them. Uh, another very yeah. fiduciary sounding um, blurb that, that I saw as well. Uh, what are some challenges that come up though on that front? So as you're, you're seeking to act in accordance with the plan, with the strategy, um, are there moments where, where, where that's difficult, where it could be suitable? where it doesn't have to be the very best, where it's good enough. Investments get analyzed in uh, a multitude of ways, some of which I agree with and some of which I don't, right? So our, our strategies, when I, I talk about our strategies, I always refer to them as being robust, which means that they, in my, in my mind, uh, they fit more like a mitten than a glove. So they're not designed for every scenario. Uh, really no strategy is, but certainly ours is not. And so where, I, I guess in that sense, it's no different than the conversation that an advisor has with the client. The conversation we have with the advisor is what time frame are you focused on, right? Because we always talk about full market cycles. We talk about the long term. Um, if you're compounding from a perpetually higher base or if you're able to do that, your longer term results are going to reflect it, right? And so um, you couple that with nobody knows what the future is going to hold. Some people think they do. I mean, some people sell, try to sell people that, you know, they, they are uh, accurate predictors of what is to come. We take the stance of we know that we don't know. And so when you get situations um, 
like take for example this year this year is a great example of those periods uh where something happens that's fully expected and delivered by the strategy that is maybe not enjoyed as much by the user right it's inevitable every strategy has this but here's ours specifically so um in february hit a high on the 19th the market drops about 10% the over the balance of the month. And then we start scaling our risk back, right? In our most tactical strategies, that means that we reduced our exposure by 50% in term inequities. Well, you go through March and, and that feels great because you've been able to preserve capital in a pretty meaningful way. But then you get a V bottom that happens in April, which is going to happen. Let me say it like this. I can't say going to and then disparage predictors in the same uh, paragraph. So let me say has happened a hundred percent of the time uh, after markets fall, they have a reciprocating effect where they bounce really hard. It's only after that, that you really get, start to get some information. So the mind of, of the investor, it, the memory of the investor is, is fairly short and, uh, you know, while we know prospect theory, for example, says that uh, the pain of losing is two times greater than the joy of winning, right? Yep. Well, that also applies to opportunity cost. Yep. So you could be better off having missed downfall in March uh, and not experienced upfall in April, but it feels like you should have experienced April and you should have experienced March, but only in hindsight. So that's when our process comes into play in terms of focusing on meeting advisors where they are, educating the advisor, um, helping the advisor ed advisor educate their client. I mean, we'll, we'll do events um, where the advisor will, will invite their clients to um, submit questions and we'll answer them over video or we'll answer them on, on a Zoom call um, or have the clients come on and ask us questions directly, which depending on the geographical region of that advisor can be a very brave thing for us to do. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause you get the, you inevitably get the question. Why didn't we sell on February 19th and buy on March 23rd? Right. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. You get those yeah. questions and then, you know, um, God bless them. You get the questions like, uh, Hey, I got an RMD coming up here and you know, <laughs> what, what are we going to, you know, yeah. well, that's not really the purpose of this call, but that right. is important. Not this year, sir. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, that's, um, Adam, to, to your question, you know, that's where the rubber meets the road for us. That's when reality sets in and you hope that, that, uh, the investor has a positive experience before they have an experience that challenges them, you know, and you remind them that every every investment strategy is is a compilation of choices, and every uh, investor has multiple choices to choose from, and there's a cost to, and a benefit to every single one of them. And so, really, there's a lot said, you know, particularly over the past five years, as the world has migrated to automated advice and robo. One of the biggest value adds an advisor and a and a planner brings to the table is not only just the goals piece, but in you know, helping the in investor wade through 52,000 options. I think I know the answer to this one, but do you think robos could act in some capacity as a fiduciary? I do. I mean, some of the features that, that are uh, present now, I mean, look, we're fully systematic. Strategies in and of themselves are very robo-like, right? We just don't believe that um, we believe in, in passive. We believe in modern portfolio theory. 
we believe uh, we just don't think it goes far enough. It's really as simple as that for us. So uh, the idea that, that the robo can act as a fiduciary, first of all, somebody has got to stand up the robo, right? So ultimately it's, it's that group (laughs) (laughs) that's, that's the fiduciary, but yeah, using low cost funds, uh, no commissions, uh, getting uh, much more precise on risk tolerance, right? And being able to deliver a more customized solution using technology to deliver in a broader way, a more customized solution uh, per client. I mean, that stuff meets a pretty high fiduciary standard in, in my book, but I don't think that, I don't know what it's going to look like for them to be, um, to take the next step in, in terms of that, you know, um, I'm not saying it can't happen. I just can't see how you get there. Sure. Yeah. I, I remember when the robos started to uh, be unleashed, how everyone said, Oh, here it comes. It's over. This is, this is done. Um, and, and the more time has passed, the more you're starting to see uh, people do have that personal need. Uh, people want to be able to pick up the phone uh, when things happen like they did in the past few months and have someone that's going to pick up and talk to them. Um, if anything, just, People like to be able to blame someone else other than yeah. themselves, right? <laughs> if, if you got a if you got an advisor, you can those, those bad ideas were all yours. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. There's no no question about that. Um, but and you know, Adam, to your point, we saw in a in a study uh, that was done by a large custodian based in San Francisco uh, that showed that that fee compression. You know, we've seen fee compression happen incrementally over the past six or seven years until last year. And last year, on average, in their wealth study, uh, they we saw an uptick in in average fee. So, yeah, I'm not saying I'm not calling the the the, the top here in, in robos, but what I will say is that I think people are particularly in light of when when downside volatility hits everyone becomes not everyone but most become reminded of the value of being able to call the advisor and someone with experience or or someone who's just been mentored by someone with it, with experience and have a conversation and that you know that is it's huge but when you go from 2009 to January of of 2020 with historically low volatility uh, and only two 20% peak to trough drawdowns. Uh, it's very easy to think that you don't need that, but you know, the market has a way of, of humbling us. Uh, and, and you know, it did. Yep. One last question for you, John, do you envision as blueprint grows that the, the possibility that, that being a fiduciary, or, or acting in that capacity with, with your clients, with the advisors, does that become more of a challenge as, as you get bigger? Because I, I just, I know your website, it feels, it feels personal. It, it feels like that piece is, is there. It's transparent. Um, I know that, that your, your, the way you do business and, and your methodology, you know, is going to be true. But when you have a bigger volume of, of advisors that you're working with, especially with these, these more customized uh, strategies, does being a fiduciary become more of a challenge? That's a good question. I mean, there's no, there's no question that one of our challenges is keeping personal touch and keeping 
you know, having this culture of building deep relationships at scale. Uh, you know, that's hard to do. Uh, I don't think we'll be confronted with, do we do that or, or, or don't we? Because uh, there's a lot of models to, to look at. A lot of business models, particularly in tech, um, have been able to do that successfully. Some have failed miserably. Uh, but there's enough, I think, models out there for us to study in order to do that successfully. Um, now, it, it may mean the decision of, you know, do you build a, a, uh, a business that's um, more focused on revenue or do you build a business that's more focused on profitability? You know, I mean, that's a question you have to ask when you talk about scaling, um, particularly a high touch scale. Uh, I don't have an answer for you right now on that specific question, uh, but what, I, what I'll say to the second one is, uh, or just a, 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 you know, number two is, what we're seeing is this consolidation of platforms and these platforms are gaining ground because of the, the movement towards a higher fiduciary standard, or let's say a broader application of the, the existing fiduciary standard. And so they're building these platforms and I, I you know, InvestNet is, is one of them um, where we, we might as a money manager over time get a uh, lower fee. However, they've created the ability for us to scale at least the investment manufacturing and delivery process, right? So it, it's almost like if you have a menu of your, your various business functions, operations, uh, investment management, you know, research, uh, compliance, uh, each of them has, you know, a, it, its own, uh, each of them could have its own P&L, so to speak, right? And so when we, when we think about scaling our, deliver, our deliverable without um, sacrificing our personal touch and our relationships, you almost have to shift, shift those around, but keep the, the, uh, the answer constant, right? So the variables will change, um, but you have to keep the answer constant. And so it's definitely, we're not, I don't think close to that yet, but, um, I hope that we're 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 aim we're working tirelessly to be confronted with that that sure. decision. I can tell you that. Yeah. Good problem to have. Yeah. I mean, I found it very yeah. interesting that that when looking at your website, the person with the longest bio on the entire website is your compliance person. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, I mean, I thought that that was pretty compelling. You know, the other thing is you got a guy by the name of Rick Bone, which sounds like he should be a, a detective for homicide in a Quentin Tarantino movie. Yeah, you know what the the funny thing about that is 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 Rick is um, so Rick started a little over a year ago. Uh, he has been a total gift to to our business. I yeah. mean, he is a fantastic guy, high integrity, really smart. But I have never met. We have walked into so many meetings uh, that he's set up, and you walk in, and it's like you walk in with with the Godfather. I mean, everybody knows him, and everybody's like. Yeah. No, wow, remember when we did this and, you know, when we had this comfort, you know, and so uh, Rick, you know, I'll say this, Rick really embodies, um, just because you mentioned him and I can brag on him a little bit, he <laughs> really embodies the characteristics that, that I talked about at the beginning of who is who a blueprint person 
is and, and, and looks, you know, and is how they're made up. Right. And, uh, smart, great work ethic, but kind and selfless. And he's a great teammate. So, uh, yeah. And, you know, he's a big guy and he has a shaved head and he's a little intimidating too. So, yeah. you know, that, you know well, with a name like Rick bone, you should be, he's got that working for him as well. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Well, yeah, I think that's kind of a, a good place to wrap it up. We uh, we went a lot, little long that uh, this episode, but I think that's good. Lots of great stuff to talk about, John. It's it's been a pleasure having you on. Yeah, yeah John, thank you, thank you so much. much it's good to meet yeah. you. Yeah, great. you bet. Thank you, guys. Uh, before we head out, John, um, where can people find out more about Blueprint and um, you know about, about kind of the journey? Yeah, so you can uh, Blueprint Investment Partners is BlueprintIP.com. Um, BlueprintMutualFunds.com is where you can find information about our, our fund. Um, and then, you know, LinkedIn, you can get a lot of content from our Blueprint IP. Uh, that's the website we've been talking about the most here about with the fiduciary language and, you know, the transparent box cube that happens when you go on the website. So uh, you can learn everything about us at BlueprintIP.com. Awesome. Thanks so much. And uh, for everyone listening, if you want to check out more episodes of the Biff Bites podcast, you can do it at BiffBites.com. we got lots of great articles and videos and our back catalog of episodes, so check it out. Uh, and until next time, I hope you guys all have a, uh, a great time and stay safe out there. Thank you.